I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, the weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Today we focus on the death penalty and the Supreme Court. The court has heard several important death penalty cases this term, and it recently issued a decision in Madison v. Alabama, and will soon decide a case called Bucklew. Um, Here to tell us about these cases and to discuss the future of capital punishment at the Supreme Court are two of America's leading scholars on this important question. John Bessler is associate professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law, where he teaches capital punishment, civil procedure, international human rights law, and lawyering skills. He's of counsel at the law firm Barons and Miller. He also teaches at the Georgetown University Law Center and has written six books on capital punishment, including most recently, The Death Penalty as Torture, From the Dark Ages to Abolition. John, it's great to have you with us. Yeah, thank you for having me on. And Richard Broden is Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Associate Professor of Law at the University of Detroit Mercy School of Law. He teaches constitutional law, capital punishment, and criminal law and procedure. He previously served in the criminal division of the Department of Justice, where he advised senior Justice Department leaders and federal prosecutors on federal death penalty matters. He also served as Assistant Attorney General of Texas for capital and post-conviction litigation. Richard, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Wonderful. Well, let us begin with the Madison versus Alabama case. The Supreme Court recently, by a five to three vote, addressed the question of whether the state can impose the ultimate penalty on a condemned prisoner who can't remember his crime because of dementia. Uh, And by a five to three vote, an opinion by Justice Elena Kagan, joined by Chief Justice Roberts, a majority of the court said that lack of memory of a crime can't be the test and isn't the test. Uh, nor does the answer turn on the reason for the lack of memory, whether it's mental illness or age-related dementia. Justice Kagan wrote that what's important is whether the prisoner has a rational understanding of what's happening to him and why, not whether he has any particular memory or any particular mental illness. Richard, why don't we begin with you? Can you tell us a bit about the facts of the Madison case and about Justice uh, Kagan's uh, holding? Sure. Uh, So this was the case out of uh, Alabama. Vernon Madison um, was uh, convicted of capital murder in Alabama after killing a police officer uh, after a domestic dispute. Uh, And years later, uh, his mental condition uh, began to deteriorate and he developed uh, a condition uh, known as vascular dementia. Um, So he claimed uh, that he could not recall committing the crime uh, for which he was convicted and sentenced to die. And he uh, argued that the, that his execution by Alabama would violate uh, the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishments. Uh, and so in deciding the case, the court had to refer back to a couple of uh, prior Eighth Amendment precedents, uh, a case called Ford versus Wainwright, and another case uh, more recent called Panetti versus Quarterman, which was a case out of Texas, Um, And uh, as you said earlier, in those cases, the court developed this standard which said that uh, the state couldn't execute someone uh, whose uh, mental state was so distorted by a mental illness 
that uh, he or she lacks a rational understanding uh, of the state's reasons for executing that person. So based on that particular standard, uh, the Supreme Court in this case, by a closely divided vote, uh, decided to remand the case back to Alabama for uh, consideration of uh, of Madison's condition in light of that uh, in light of that Eighth Amendment standard articulated in Ford and Panetti. John, uh, Justice Elena Kagan was quite vivid in her opinion in the case. She wrote, do you remember your first day at school? Probably not. But if your mother told you years later you were sent home for hitting a classmate, you'd have no trouble grasping the story. And similarly, if you somehow blacked out a crime you had committed, but later learned what you'd done, you could well appreciate the state's desire to impose a penalty. Tell us about the constitutional basis for her holding that the central question was whether a prisoner has a rational understanding of what's happening to him, whether that represents any kind of advance uh, in the law or an application of existing law, and also why Chief Justice Roberts joined uh, Justice Kagan and, and, and what the three uh, dissenters led by Justice Alito said. Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting um, opinion. The uh, First of all, the oral argument that Brian Stevenson did was was very interesting. I mean, the, the facts of this case, obviously very horrible crime, as uh, as Richard articulated. But what we have here is somebody now on death row suffered a, a series of strokes. Um, the last one, I think, in 2016. And it's the this vascular dementia is a, uh, is, a, is a progressive condition. So this is a person who uh, does not, uh, you know, is in a very small cell, but does not uh, know to use the same toilet that's in his own cell, um, is incontinent, um, can't recite the alphabet past the letter G, um, and uh, MRI shows uh, there's dementia, his third speech, is legally blind. So the first issue that Elena Kagan's opinion addressed was whether or not it's constitutional and consistent with the Eighth Amendment to execute someone who simply does not remember the crime. And the court concluded that it is constitutional. And, and in fact, at the oral argument, which, which uh, was very in, would be very interesting for people to listen to, uh, there was a long discussion about how uh, criminal defendants often uh, say that they don't remember uh, the crime. Now here, of course, we have somebody that clearly um, uh, the crime was committed 30 years ago, and there's been a lot that's gone on since then, including this uh, development of, of vascular dementia. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that people talked about at the, at the oral argument, for example, was Alzheimer's um, and uh, dementia and the progressive nature of those uh, diseases. Um, so the first thing is the court says, no, it's, it's okay to actually execute somebody who doesn't remember. Um, but then the court went on to say, but you cannot execute somebody who does not have a rational understanding uh, uh, of why they're being executed. And this is really a uh, sort of an extension, I would say, of what the court um, discussed in Panetti versus Quarterman. In that case, the court was talking about uh, somebody who had gross delusions. Uh, stemming from a severe mental disorder. Um, and in this case, we're talking about uh, this idea of dementia. And so there is a, a, an extension of that uh, principle uh, from, uh, so going back to the Ford case, which said that the insane cannot be executed. That was a case from uh, 1986. And the Panetti case was in uh, 2007. So we have sort of a, uh, a development of the law. And there's actually been a lot of uh, case law recently that deals with, in the death penalty context, in this is issue of where people have either intellectual disabilities or some sort of um, intellectual or mental um, issues. So the Atkins versus Virginia case in 2002, it also said that it's it's unconstitutional under the Eighth Amendment to execute those that have uh, intellectual uh, disabilities. 
So the the dissent was actually uh, focused in large part on how the uh, it felt that the majority had not followed the rules of the court and had taken up an issue which which the uh, the, the dissenters felt they, they should not have taken up. I think there was a lot of back and forth uh, between the uh, majority and the dissenting opinion on that score. Uh, the majority uh, opinion felt that uh, this these issues were squarely within the issues that the, the Supreme Court had granted cert on, and so they were willing to, to take up these issues. Uh, Richard, as, as John says, Justice Alito's dissent focused on whether uh, the question of whether the defendant could understand his crime was a new issue uh, pled below uh, or not. Uh, Justice Alito insisted that the original pleading focused merely on whether the defendant remembered the crime. And you have both talked about the Panetti case from 2007. That was a five to four decision written by Justice Anthony Kennedy, who's now retired. So um, tell us more about the breakdown of the court. Is it significant that J- Chief Justice Roberts, who dissented in Panetti, uh, joined Justice Kagan here? Um, and what does that say about the future of the death penalty at the Supreme Court? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think that um, we don't know yet what kind of uh, what kind of death penalty future that we're going to see on the court. Uh, my sense is that um, Chief Justice Roberts may be positioning himself um, sort of where Justice Kennedy was in the death penalty cases. That is, he may be staking out a, a position in these cases where, uh, in particularly egregious cases or particularly troublesome cases, he might be willing willing to uh, sort of depart uh, uh, from the conservatives uh, in the particular case. But broadly speaking, he would still, uh, I believe, um, be very much opposed to judicial efforts to abolish capital punishment. So so Roberts, I think, and, and again, as I was saying earlier, I think it might be too early to tell, but my sense is based on his previous votes in, in other death penalty cases, we're not really talking about an, an abolitionist here in Chief Justice Roberts. We're, we're not seeing someone sort of move from uh, being very much in favor of retaining the death penalty to someone being very much against it. I think we may simply be seeing that in particularly um, uh, uh, troublesome cases or in discrete types of cases or with discrete constitutional issues, Roberts may at least be willing uh, to side with the more liberal members of the court, but um, but that he wouldn't go too far. I always perceive that to sort of be where Justice Kennedy was on the court, uh, and it may very well be that that's the position that Roberts uh, uh, is planning to occupy. But but it's it's too early to tell right now with uh, Justice Kennedy's departure so so recent. Um, so we'll have to uh, we'll have to uh, see a few more cases to be sure. John, your thoughts on Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, Here's an interesting statistic. In the past year and a half, since the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh, the Chief Justice has joined the liberal justices in no fewer than three five to four decisions, uh, most recently ordering a fresh look at the mental competence of a death row inmate, but also the uh, decision blocking a Louisiana law that would require doctors who perform abortions to seek admitting privileges. By contrast, in the previous 12 years of his chief justiceship from 2005 to 2017, the chief provided the fifth vote for the liberals in only four cases. So how significant do you think his vote in Madison is? Well, I mean, I think that the facts of Madison are obviously very disturbing in terms of, you know, thinking about executing somebody with dementia. Um, but the, you know, I, I think that Justice Roberts is an institutionalist, I think, and he's concerned, I, I'm sure, about the institutional um, integrity of the court. 
um, maybe particularly in the in the wake of the of the Kavanaugh hearings, making making sure that this uh, court does not look like it's it's overly political. Um, and so, one of the things that I think um, is interesting to think about is you talked about Justice Kennedy. Justice Kennedy, of course, uh, often referred to the concept of dignity. Um, he did the it did so in the Obergefell case, uh, the marriage equality case. Um, but you also, um, in this area of law in particular that we're looking at today, uh, the Ford versus Wainwright case back in uh, 1986, that was actually a plurality opinion that Justice Marshall uh, had authored. And in that case, he specifically refers to the concept of dignity, which underlies the uh, the Eighth Amendment. I think the concept of dignity, of course, is, is one that is not in the Constitution itself, but has informed the, the Eighth Amendment. It's been called the touchstone of the Eighth Amendment. And so I think in a case like this, um, that could be an issue that, you know, Justice uh, Roberts is thinking about um, and maybe taking up, as Richard said, maybe uh, Justice Kennedy's uh, mantle there a little bit uh, in terms of some of these cases. Justice Kennedy was was well known um, for uh, the issue of intellectual disabilities and was very concerned about the execution of people with intellectual disabilities. And that was something he wrote on uh, a couple of times uh, while on the court. Thanks for that. Richard, let's discuss that constitutional foundation for the Ford and Panetti uh decisions and, and, and whether you think it was correct. As, as John says, uh, constitutional dignity and decency were very important to Justice Kennedy. And in the Panetti case, he said that the Eighth Amendment forbids executing the insane because to do so would offend human decency uh, in not serving the goals of retribution or deterrence. He wrote the potential for a prisoner's recognition of the severity of the offense and the objective of community vindication are called into question if the prisoner's mental state is so distorted by mental illness that his awareness of the crime and punishment has little or no relation to the understanding of those concepts shared by the community as a whole. So first of all, do you believe uh, that that focus on human decency or dignity is plausibly or correctly rooted in the Eighth Amendment? And now that Justice Kennedy has retired from the court, do you expect a majority of the court to continue to embrace it? So uh, it is certainly true, as as John says, uh, Justice Kennedy devoted uh, not just his uh, some of his death penalty jurisprudence to the concept of dignity, but but also, as as John mentioned, um, other areas of constitutional adjudication. Um, in this particular area, um, again, I'm not sure how broadly that I would would read Justice Kennedy's. Um, uh, Je- Justice Kennedy's position on on the the um, the role of dignity and the meaning of the Eighth Amendment, uh, and the reason that I say that is because despite the fact that he he did take these positions uh, in some of the capital cases and and certainly um, wrote uh, some of the, some of the most important uh, decisions of the last couple of decades limiting the scope of capital punishment, um, I think of cases like uh, Roper versus Simmons. And uh, Kennedy versus Louisiana, uh, he he was reluctant to go along with broader uh, attacks on the death penalty. He never joined any of these uh, uh, in any of these more expansive sort of challenges to the per se constitutionality of the death penalty. Uh, and for that reason, I was always sort of skeptical that Justice Kennedy would uh, would would ultimately vote for something like judicial abolition of the death penalty. But I think in this particular area, in uh, you know the the Panetti type cases, uh, in, in a case like like Madison, um, Kennedy's uh, uh, Kennedy's 
um, sort of sensibilities about dignity and its role in constitutional adjudication more broadly, um, I, I think certainly um, was 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 given a, um, an ample voice. I just don't know how broadly that I would read um, that particular sentiment with regard to Eighth Amendment cases more uh, more widely. John, a, a, a similar question to you. We'll, we'll we'll talk about Justice Kavanaugh in a moment. He was not sitting in the Madison case because he wasn't on the court when it was uh, briefed and argued, but. Do you believe that the retirement of Justice Kennedy will fundamentally change death penalty jurisprudence or not? Well, I mean, I think a lot of people were actually hopeful before Justice Kennedy retired that he might make a more strong statement um, against the death penalty. There, in the, the Kennedy versus Louisiana case um, that uh, Richard mentioned, Justice Kennedy did at one point say that the use of the death penalty risks the dissent and brutality that the Eighth Amendment was designed to prevent. Um, but he did not in that case um, uh, you know, obviously issue some sort of per se uh, ruling against the death penalty and say it was per se unconstitutional. The only of uh, the justices so far in the court who have been willing to take that position were uh, Justice William Brennan uh, and Thurgood Marshall, who uh, famously dissented in, in many, many cases and said that the, uh, the death penalty should be considered a per se violation of the Eighth Amendment. Uh, the closest we've seen recently was the dissent in Glossop versus Gross, which uh, we had actually two dissents in that case. And one of the dissents was written by Justice Sotomayor, and she focused on the risk of the of physically excruciating pain um, and uh, actually said that in that case, the, the method of execution risked the, uh, was the chemical equivalent of being uh, uh, burned at the stake. So she was concerned about the physical torturous aspects of, of the death penalty in that, in that Oklahoma lethal injection protocol. But... Uh, Justice Breyer's dissent, which was only joined by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, both of those justices actually called for a, a full briefing on the constitutionality of the death penalty, which would really take us back all the way back to the Furman versus Georgia days where the Supreme Court declared the death penalty um, unconstitutional, which only lasted for four years until Greg versus Georgia reinstated the, the, the death penalty in the United States in 1976. So I think that there is an issue here as to uh, what the retirement of Justice Kennedy means for the court. Uh, I'm not sure we can read the tea leaf so carefully to know. I mean, I think we have to consider the context of where America is now with the death penalty, and it's the, the future is hard to predict. So I think one thing that uh, we have to think about here is the international scale. So in Europe, uh, there is no death penalty in Europe any longer. It's a death penalty-free zone. And we have uh, a num number of the countries throughout the world that no longer use the death penalty. We have uh, South Africa's constitutional court got rid of the death penalty back in the mid-1990s. So I think we have to consider where the U.S. is in relation to the rest of the world. And we see a lot of resolutions at the United Nations calling for a moratorium on the death penalty. So I think the future is hard to predict. Well, John, your mention of unusually uh, painful methods of execution introduces our second case, which is called Bucklew against Precythe. That was argued on November 6th. And the question in Bucklew is whether Missouri's plan to use an injection of pentobarbital to carry out a long-delayed execution of Mr. Bucklew might violate the Eighth Amendment because he suffers from a rare disease that, according to 
his lawyers means that he could choke to death on his own blood if this method were used, and he suggests that alternative methods, including using gas, might be preferable. Richard, can you tell us about the the facts of the Bucklew case, uh, what Mr. Bucklew's claims are, and uh, also about Justice Kavanaugh's interventions in the oral argument? Sure. Uh, so Bucklew is a case out of Missouri. Uh, Mr. Bucklew was convicted for um, uh, the murder uh, of a um, uh, a former girlfriend. Uh, he had he had uh, kidnapped and and raped uh, the 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 girlfriend and then wounded a police officer during during a shootout. Um, he has. Uh, a condition, and I and I'm I'm not a doctor, so I might mess this up, but it's it's known as uh, cavernous hemangioma, uh, and what uh, what it does is apparently it causes um, uh, uh, these blood-filled tumors to grow um, in the the upper part of his body. He claims that uh, the execution that Missouri contemplates for him would result in extreme or excruciating pain, and that uh, doing so would violate the Eighth Amendment. Uh, I think what is interesting about the Bucklew case is he doesn't claim that he can't be executed by Missouri. He simply claims that this particular method of carrying out the execution would be unconstitutional. And he has suggested an alternative, uh, albeit an alternative that the state has not used. Uh, and that alternative uh, is is uh, the, the use of nitrogen gas or, or uh, nitrogen asphyxiation. Um, now, another interesting thing about this case is, uh, as you mentioned, Justice Kavanaugh did participate in the oral argument uh, and had some pointed questions uh, for, for uh, in particular, for the, the Missouri uh, Solicitor General. Um, but one of the uh, one of the things that Kavanaugh was concerned about was whether um, the creation of this kind of extreme pain would violate the Eighth Amendment uh, if it if it um, if if there was such pain. Um, uh, would it violate the Eighth Amendment? And it, it, even if there is pain, how much pain would it take before there could be a violation of the Eighth Amendment? And the reason that that he sort of, um, you know, asked it uh, that way is because the Missouri Solicitor General um, uh, seemed to say that even if there is some uh, some uh, significant pain, that would not violate the Eighth Amendment. Um, but ended up conceding uh, to uh, Justice Kavanaugh that uh, that there there is a limit to the amount of, of pain that the state can inflict, uh, which is to say, if it is enough pain that it would no longer um, be in in uh, ad- advancing or for the purpose of any um, sort of legitimate penological goal, that would violate the Eighth Amendment, which is to say, uh, again, the uh, the state cannot inflict pain merely for the sake of inflicting pain. So, uh, so, so that was uh, that was Justice Kavanaugh's main concern, I think, in this case. John, you noted that Justice Sotomayor has uh, uh, argued that burning at the stake would undoubtedly be um, a violation of the Eighth Amendment, and that and that uh, punishments which produce similar pain are also unconstitutional. Justice Stephen Breyer pressed that point in the oral argument. He said all would agree that burning someone at the stake would violate the Constitution. So why wouldn't an inmate be able to challenge a method of death that had the same physical sensation for the condemned? And Justice Kavanaugh did seem uh, sympathetic to that line of argument. He asked, are you saying even if the method creates gruesome and brutal pain, you can still do it because there's no alternative? Tell us about 
what the Supreme Court has said about when pain can become so extreme that it may constitute cruel and unusual punishment and what the standards are for judging whether that pain exists and how important it is that there be some kind of alternative. Yeah, this was actually an issue that Justice Sotomayor in her uh, dissent in the Glossop versus Gross case from 2015 actually had an argument with the majority about. And, and that is that the, the majority opinion in Glossop uh, essentially decided that it was not enough for you to show that a method of execution was itself cruel and unusual. You had to show that there was some alternative uh, method that could be used. Um, and this puts, obviously, uh, defense lawyers in these cases in a very uh, difficult situation, probably ethically, because they're they're basically being asked to stipulate that there be another method of execution by which their clients could be, uh, could be executed. Um, so the court um, has long said, since it reinstated the death penalty in 1976, that if the death penalty is, is constitutional, then there must be a way to carry it out. Uh, but there's been a long history of uh, dissent on this point. I think one of the things that has been lost in this discussion is is the issue of of the psychological torment associated with uh, the use of the death penalty. Um, the, the the court in in two cases in the Bayes versus Reese case, uh, which challenged uh, Kentucky's lethal injection uh, protocol, three three drug lethal injection protocol, and in the Glossop versus Gross case, which challenged the the, the protocol in Oklahoma, the court seems to focus like a laser light on will there be that excruciating physical pain at the moment of death? And that to me loses sight of the the larger uh, picture of the psychological uh, torture that may be associated with uh, the death penalty. Um, so one of the things, interesting things I've looked at recently was in Alabama, which is a death penalty state, which is where the Madison case comes out of, the uh, the Supreme Court of Alabama itself has said that psychological torture um, is defined as uh, where somebody has an awareness of their impending death, but where they're helpless to prevent that death. And that seems to me to be a, a very applicable principle to be thinking about when you're thinking about people on death row. Um, I think in Madison's case, he came within literally a half hour of, of, of being executed before the, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a stay. And a lot of these cases, you've got people that are being on death row, not just for uh, you know a year or two, but for literally decades. I think Justice Breyer in, in one uh, recent case uh, wrote about a death row inmate who had been on death row for 40 years. Um, and so that issue is one that the U.S. Supreme Court, um, there was a case called Blackie, which is the, the inmate who made the claim initially, uh, who I think had been on death row for something like 17 years. But we've had a number of so-called Blackie claims being brought since then, but the U.S. Supreme Court has yet to take up this issue of psychological uh, torture, even though the U.S., um, uh, when it ratified the Convention Against Torture, uh, that convention prohibits both physical or mental torture. It doesn't have to be just physical, it can also be mental. So the court just really hasn't, I think, fully considered the issue of the mental torture associated with the death penalty at this point. Uh, Richard, uh, first let's focus on the court standard for determining whether alternatives to physical torture exist. In the oral argument, both Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito asked tough questions of Mr. Bucklew's attorney. Justice Alito said, how can Bucklew know that execution by lethal gas would cause fewer problems than lethal uh, injection? Chief Justice Roberts asked, how can it be a reasonable alternative if it's never been used before? It seems to me if you have a method that no state has used that the danger is magnified. So what, what were they getting out there? What is the 
uh, Glossip standard for determining whether or not you need an alternative method and, and how you have to prove that it's likely to cause less pain. And then after telling us about that, you might tell us how many justices you think might be sympathetic to the point John raised about considering psychological as well as physical torture. Right. Uh, so I, I think that, uh, you know, ultimately that's what this case is, is going to be decided on, uh, on, on this question of uh, when an inmate needs to or, or must um, uh, assert an alternative method of execution and when it would be necessary. Um, what's, what's interesting about Chief Justice Roberts's position here is it goes back to his uh, position in, in Glossop, um, which is the idea that uh, if the death penalty is constitutional, that is, if we are going to say that the state can carry out a death sentence, it must have uh, a method of doing so. So if if one particular method is ruled to be uh, invalid or, or is disfavored, um, then, then the state must have some way of carrying out uh, the, the punishment. So, and, and I think that particular notion is, uh, is, uh, uh, sort of, uh, deeply embedded, uh, in Chief Justice Roberts, uh, questioning, uh, in the, in the Bucklew case. Uh, with regard to the, the breakdown on, on the court, um, I, I'm not sure that this is going to be any more successful for Bucklew than the gloss up claim was, uh, uh, in, in, in that case. Um, but there certainly is is a split uh, among the justices uh, on on this particular question, and, and as I said, I think Bucklew may may ultimately provide a little more clarity. I mean, assuming that the court reaches the merits of the of the case, uh, provide a little bit more clarity uh, post glossop um, on the the circumstances under which um, it would require uh, a, an alternative method of, of execution. Um, in terms of the, the psychological uh, pain, psychological torture, uh, I, I, certainly I think John, um, who has written extensively about this, is, is right that if the American people viewed uh, the imposition of the death penalty as torture, they, they certainly might be more inclined to oppose it. I'm just not sure uh, that a substantial number of people uh, view it that way, and certainly in places where the death penalty remains relatively popular, uh, it is, is uh, probably not viewed that way. But I also think it's significant that the Supreme Court has consistently rejected um, these claims by death row inmates regarding um, prolonged uh, stays on on death row. And he, he mentioned uh, the, the Lackey case. There, there have been any number of other uh, cases that have come to the court raising this, this what we call a, a Lackey claim. Uh, and the court has, has just sort of continuously uh, rejected those cases and hasn't really shown any interest in the issue. So now, uh, it's, it's fair to say that we can't always tell much about the merits of an issue from the mere fact that the court um, declines to review the case or declines to grant what we call uh, certiorari. Um, nevertheless, I, I think it is significant that the court has, has continuously rejected uh, merits review of, of those claims. That's not to say that the court won't get interested in the issue at some point in the near future. It very well may. Um, but certainly over the course of the last couple of decades, the court has not shown much interest in that, uh, in that question. John, let us talk about the future of the death penalty. You have argued in important articles like The Anomaly of Executions, the Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause in the 21st Century, that uh, the because the death penalty has no place in a civilized society, be it Africa or America, it should go the way of the stocks, the pillory, and the whipping post, just as American society no longer tolerates ear cropping or hand branding, it should no longer tolerate executions. Is it right that it doesn't appear that there is 
anything close to a majority on the Supreme Court for that position at the moment. And as you look at the future of the death penalty on the Supreme Court, how far toward abolition could you see it getting? And and what uh, directions do you think are most likely to be uh, moving in an anti-death penalty uh, direction? Well, I think there's a few issues. One is to think about what's happening at the state legislative level, and you're seeing some action there. There's been some uh, efforts, including among some pretty conservative um, uh, legislatures to abolish the death penalty. Um, And so you're seeing some action at the legislative level, but you're also still seeing this push um, of litigation before the U.S. Supreme Court and the invitation of Justice Breyer and Justice Ginsburg to, again, have a sort of a full-throated examination of the death penalty and issues around you know, not just uh, uh, the, the the fact that there, the, the risk of physically excruciating pain, but also this issue of the death row phenomenon with the long extended periods of time on death row that people are experiencing, um, but also issues of arbitrariness and racial discrimination associated with the death penalty. So I think it's, uh, you know, the only the only way that the, that the death penalty sort of is abolished in, 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 a, in a clean way in the United States would be for the U.S. Supreme Court simply to declare it un- unconstitutional. Uh, one of the points I make is that, you know, we've already gotten rid of um, non-lethal uh, corporal punishments in the United States. And so going back to um, a case called Jackson versus Bishop was in uh, 1968, was a case that Justice Blackman, when he was on the Eighth Circuit, not on the Supreme Court, but on the Eighth Circuit wrote, where he um, wrote the opinion uh, declaring the use of the lash um, unconstitutional in Arkansas, and said that uh, the use of the lash, use of whipping in prisons, was both degrading to the the person being whipped, but also to the person doing the whipping. And so I think when you think about the idea that uh, in our country it's already considered an Eighth Amendment violation to have a non-lethal uh, corporal punishment, it may only be a matter of time before the the court is forced to confront this issue of the the psychological torture associated with the death penalty. I, I say that because when you think about something that's already considered to be an act of psychological torture, a classic example is a mock execution. That is where you're led to believe that you're about to be executed. So if a simulated or a, or a, a fake execution is uh, already considered a, a psychological torture, then one must at least ask the question whether something more severe than that should also not also qualify uh, under that rubric. Uh, the court to date, has treated torture and capital punishment in separate uh, legal silos. But I, I do wonder, in the, going forward, if at some point the court won't uh, take up the issue and and resolve this issue of the psychological torture, because it is an immutable characteristic of the death penalty that involves the use of, of death threats as part of the process by which the person is, um, is ultimately executed. There's the capital charge. There's the death sentence, and there's ultimately the the intimate or the 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 imminent uh, threat of death leading up to the execution itself. So justices do change their mind, and I think that one of the things that you look back with Justice Blackman, he uh, initially wrote that he he was against the death penalty, but he was he voted to uphold the death penalty because he said he, he was different between a judge and a legislator. But later he changed his mind on that and said it was it was unconstitutional. So so it's hard to predict, I think. Uh, Richard, you have a really interesting piece called The Federal Death Penalty, Trumpism and Civil Rights Enforcement in the American Law Review uh, last year. You say public support for capital punishment is high and may even be understated, and the death penalty is likely not to be abolished by the Supreme Court anytime soon. At the same time, you criticize the 
president for uh, calls for its imposition, which have often been controversial, reckless, and at odds with applicable law, such as the call for the execution of Sergeant Bo Bergdahl. You say that uh, an effective reform might be to increase the legitimacy of capital punishment by showing it can be consistent with a regime of civil and constitutional rights. In particular, you suggest that Congress amend the Federal Death Penalty Act to include a greater emphasis on civil rights-based offenses, including the case of Dylan Roof, the man who was convicted of shooting nine people in a church in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, Tell us more about all those really interesting arguments and how you think that uh, death penalty reform might lead to uh, a death penalty that you call limited uh, and effective uh, uh, in a season of doubt. Sure. So uh, public opinion uh, with respect to the death penalty has always sort of fluctuated. Um, it remains, I think, um, relatively uh, high these days, although it's lower than it has been in the past. Uh, it's it's actually, I think, in some recent polling actually uh, t- ticked up very slightly. Ultimately, I'm not sure how helpful that, that public opinion polling is because of the way that the questions are asked. I mean, generally in public opinion polling, um, it asks a generic question, but the reality um, of how we decide who gets the death penalty uh, is very, very different. Um, we we view individual cases, we view the strength of the evidence, we view the uh, aggravating and mitigating factors that apply to uh, to individual cases. We don't have mandatory death penalties anymore. Um, and I worry sometimes that public opinion polling on the question can kind of create this illusion that that the respondent is being asked to decide um, whether a mandatory death penalty should be carried out. So uh, so I have some concerns about public opinion polling on, on the death penalty question, but nevertheless, it, it seems to be remaining relatively stable, not as high as it has been in the past, but relatively stable in, in, in favor of capital punishment. And I, and I think certainly in some jurisdictions that uh, number might be even higher, and in particular cases, it might even be higher. Uh, and that, that's why I say that it is perhaps true um, that in some instances, uh, polling might understate support for capital punishment in a particular case uh, where the, uh, the, the, the killing is particularly brutal or egregious. Uh, you, might have, um, uh, you, you might have some folks who might sort of generally be either against capital punishment or sort of uh, indifferent or agnostic toward capital punishment, uh, but who might believe that in a particularly egregious case, uh, the death penalty might, might be um, at least permissible if not appropriate. Uh, with regard to President Trump, look, he, he has spoken um, uh, extensively uh, throughout the course of his adult life about the death penalty. He's made a number of controversial public statements uh, about capital punishment. Um, I, I don't have any particular problem with the president articulating generalized support for the death penalty. I think it's perfectly appropriate for a president to uh, to do that. My concern is with the president taking a position uh, in a specific case involving a specific individual um, whose case has not yet gone through the Department of Justice's uh, death penalty review uh, protocol yet. My concern is that it can make it appear as though um, the Department of Justice is going to be bound by the president's word rather than by a careful review of the facts and circumstances of each particular case, uh, which is uh, which is the way that uh, federal death penalty cases really ought to be determined. Uh, under the, the department's death penalty protocol, uh, it is the attorney general, not the president and not the individual federal prosecutor, but the attorney general 
who decides whether the death penalty will be sought in a particular case. Uh, the attorney general gets extensive uh, advice on this and information from people within the Department of Justice, from death penalty experts in the department, from federal prosecutors, uh, from people in his office. Uh, and then he ultimately makes the call after a careful review of all of the evidence and all of the aggravating and mitigating factors and all of the facts and circumstances of a given case. I think it is that kind of process that can help to uh, give the public confidence in the administration of the federal death penalty. But I worry that that confidence is undermined if there is a sense that the Department of Justice is simply doing whatever the president is publicly saying that the department should do. Uh, so, so those are my concerns with regard to, uh, to the president's public statements. Um, and finally, with regard to federal criminal law, uh, it, it, is, it is the case already that a number of civil rights uh, crimes under the um, uh, under federal criminal law are punishable by death. And, and one of those I, I noted in, in my paper uh, that is not punishable by death is, is uh, crimes pursuant to the, the hate crimes uh, enforcement statute, the, the so-called Shepard Bird Act. Um, and, and I simply suggest that, that adding a death penalty provision, which was debated by Congress at the time, uh, and there was even a proposal to add a death penalty provision uh, to, to that legislation, um, adding something like that uh, would, would not be inconsistent with the existing uh, scheme of civil rights enforcement, which, as I said, already uh, contains some capital provisions. Uh, and it might go some ways toward uh, enhancing the public's confidence um, uh, in uh, uh, the federal administration of, uh, of its death penalty. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this extremely illuminating discussion. Uh, John, the first one is to you, and I think we should go back to Madison, uh, the Madison case, rather. And I'm going to ask you, do you believe that executing uh, Vernon Madison, uh, a man who suffers from dementia and long-term memory loss, uh, would violate the Eighth Amendment, uh, and why? Or why not? I do. I mean, I, I, I think that um, uh, I've been a long opponent of the death penalty, and uh, that's no secret. Right? The, the title of my book, The Death Penalty is Torture, I think would indicate that. Um, so I, I am a person who believes that the death penalty should be declared unconstitutional as a violation of the Eighth Amendment. I think this is just another example of a case in which um, uh, we should not be uh, executing uh, this individual because of the, the lack of dignity associated with it, because of the cruelty of, of executing somebody who essentially does not know um, what's going on um, in terms of his current status because of his, uh, his deterioration. Um, but I do think that we need to think about this in the larger scope. And uh, the Eighth Amendment has long been read since 1958 to be read in accordance with the evolving standards of decency of a maturing society. And I think as society has evolved, uh, we need to be thinking about the larger issue of, of torture. Um, and torture used to be seen as something that operated principally on the body. And since the, uh, the U.S. signed on to the uh, Convention Against Torture, other nations have joined on to that. Uh, more than 150 countries are party to the Convention Against Torture. There's been a, a commitment made by the international community and by the United States that we would not engage in either physical or a mental or so psychological uh, torture. And I think um, you already have a definition in a death penalty state of psychological torture, which is the making someone aware of their impending death, but making them helpless to prevent that death. 
and where you don't have the necessity to carry out an execution because we have life without parole, we have the ability to, to uh, uh, detain people, incarcerate people, that the death penalty simply is not necessary. And it becomes so arbitrary. Uh, it's also just really become inconsistent um, with the, uh, the rule of law. Uh, and one of the things that I'm most disturbed about is also the racial uh, inequities associated with the death penalty. And I actually went back uh, recently and looked at the history of the 14th Amendment, which is, of course, the amendment that applies the 8th Amendment against the, the states. Uh, and the 14th Amendment was put in place after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And that Civil Rights Act of 1866 required like punishments between blacks and whites. And we just not have not seen that in our country, that we've never seen a system of the death penalty that has been operating in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that is not discriminatory in nature. And that's an additional reason why I think the death penalty should, as you said, uh, as I, I wrote in that article, go the way of the whipping post and, and be abolished ultimately. Richard, last word to you. Do you believe that the execution of Vernon Madison, who suffers from dementia, has long-term memory loss, would violate the Eighth Amendment or not, and why or why not? Well, I'm skeptical of his claim. I would want to know more uh, before uh, ultimately deciding that. I, I can certainly imagine uh, a circumstance uh, in which I would uh, I, I would support his his claim, but uh, but as I said, I'm I'm sort of skeptical uh, on on Eighth Amendment grounds. Uh, of this argument, uh, merely that, uh, that that the dignity of the individual is is what should uh, is what should prevail. I have no no problem recognizing uh, or respecting the the inherent uh, dignity of the individual, um, but but I also uh, believe in moral agency and uh, and and the the idea that uh, what really we're trying to do in these cases is we're trying to get it right and we're trying to do justice uh, in in the particular case. Um, with regard to the, the the death penalty more broadly, uh, I, I, it's no secret that I have uh, uh, been part of the so-called machinery of death. I, I have uh, participated in uh, a, a number of, of capital cases and generally support capital punishment, but um, but not in every case. Um, uh, I think we can uh, we can use a system of uh, of, of fair uh, individualized determination uh, to decide whether seeking the death penalty is appropriate in in a given case, uh, and we don't have to have a broad death penalty. We could have a relatively limited uh, death penalty that is fair in its administration, that is effective, uh, and that serves uh, the 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 ends of justice. Um, so, uh, so again, my, my support for, for capital punishment, uh, remains, uh, but nevertheless, uh, I, I believe that we should, uh, we should do our best to have, uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, no fair and, and effective enforcement of the death penalty. And, and, and finally, what I would say is, is this, um, death penalty, uh, abolitionists and, and supporters, uh, aren't going to agree on the ultimate question, but, uh, once we get to the, to, to the, um, uh, to the understanding that there will be, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, some death penalty in the United States, even if it's fairly limited and even if it's only in a few jurisdictions, uh, that there will be some death penalty in the United States. I think there is a lot on which abolitionists and supporters can still agree. Um, we can agree that there shouldn't be mandatory death penalties. We can agree that there should be individualized uh, sentencing and consideration of aggravating and mitigating factors. We can agree that there should be a fair uh, process, uh, uh, divorced from politics, 
for deciding um, when prosecutors will seek the death penalty in particular cases. Now, we may come to different conclusions on particular legal questions and on constitutional questions in particular, uh, but I think in, in thinking about designing and crafting an effective death penalty in this country, once we understand that there will be some limited form of capital punishment, I think there's a lot that we can agree on. Thank you so much, Richard Broden and John Bessler, for a nuanced, thoughtful, and very illuminating discussion of the death penalty and the future of the Supreme Court. Um, homework, we the people listeners, once the Bucklew opinion comes down, read the majority, read the dissenting opinion if there is one, and write to me and tell me which you find more constitutionally persuasive and why. John, Richard, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Dave Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team. As always, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone else like you who is hungry for constitutional education and enlightenment. And always remember, dear We the People listeners, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people like you around the country who are inspired by our inspiring nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support our mission by becoming a member of the National Constitution Center at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership with all sorts of thrilling membership benefits, in particular, just lots of our contents. You can keep learning or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. A donation of any amount to signal your commitment to the Constitution Center's mission and to We the People would be greatly appreciated. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.